0: Geordie, welcome! Welcome to the Charles Hogan Experience. Thanks for coming on, buddy. <laughs> yeah, nice you. yeah, no, cheers for having us, guys. Nice, man, yeah, we saw your podcast with um Craig Jones and uh, mutual friend James Smith as well. We're like, fuck, man, we need to get this guy on. Obviously, still good work with Falk, uh, Izzy, and uh, Leon Edwards.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's been a busy last couple of years. The last last year or so, has been uh, really crazy busy, but um. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been interesting working with Craig, which I'm sure we'll we'll talk about a lot.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No doubt, no doubt. Mate, how did you how did you, so who who did you first get in contact with? Was it he Volk or uh which fighters did you really start working with that kicked your kicked your kind of career off?
1: Uh it, it's a funny thing, and I'm sure you guys know like being in this space as well. It it a lot of it is word of mouth, right? Like as much as we live in this social media world and yeah do paid marketing and paid advertising and all of this to get all this inorganic reach I I still think the best type of advertising is word of mouth right and definitely for me that's how it happened it's it's a funny story I was doing this for for a couple years when I lived in North America I lived in Canada for a couple years after graduating that's kind of where TFD started in its infancy I was training and competing over there and helping a few guys in the gym when I got back to Australia I started kicking off and going to fight weeks and talking to local fighters. I ended up connecting with a couple of local fighters in Australia. And I don't know if you guys are remembering Ben 10, Ben Newen was a fighter out of Australia here. And then Tyson Pedro, this was years and years and years ago. We were down in Adelaide and we had a UFC event down there. And the first uh, guy that I worked with at City Kickboxing was Kai Kara France. And the reason I worked with him, because I was down there with Ben 10 and Tyson helping those two out and Kai's nutritionist that he was using the guy that Kai had worked with his whole camp was down for his fight week his nutritionist uh started working with Kai's last minute replacement opponent so Kai's opponent pulled out it was a last minute replacement (laughs) his nutritionist ended up being like best buddies with him from high school or something and he was like oh man like it's all cool if we like I'll work with both of you guys and I don't know if you guys have spent much time with like Americans it's a very different like I know I know the poms are very similar to us and the kiwis right like that camaraderie and loyalty is a big thing right like you you pick your side of the fence in in all types of sports and and that didn't go down too well with Kai and then he got wind that I was at the hotel and he basically was like hey man I'm in a bit of a rut um can you just help me out and make weight and I was like at the time I was a bit like ah yeah like I'm still figuring all this out and I was new to it and I was like yeah I'll help you out not really knowing too much about him but that's when I met all the city kickboxing guys. And then me and Kai ended up getting along really well. And so I ended up working with him and then obviously then you're in with the gym and it just kind of snowballs from there. It just there. extends from there. Nice.
2: Yeah, yeah nice man. Is key, I guess. What about mouth is definitely key for business. Yeah. At least you can trust someone that you know pretty well more than just like random Google reviews. <laughs> Who knows, he's on the Google review. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <clears throat> nice. Uh,
0: do you want to tell some of us viewers just quickly what you what you, what the uh, the fight dietitian does and what what kind of services you offer for fighters in that?
1: Yeah, so so TFD, I guess when we started, the real focus was just providing a science in a space where traditionally there wasn't a lot of science, right? And what we do is we bring a lot of the updated combat sports science and we offer a more evidence based approach for combat athletes, not only just to make weight, but We focus a lot on performance nutrition, not just during camp, but all year round. Essentially the goal of TFD when I started is, was to get rid of the ridiculousness that comes with cutting weight. And I think anyone that's competed at whatever level, you don't even have to be that serious about. I know white belt jujitsu guys. And I did it when I was a white belt in jujitsu, like doing stupid weight cuts just to make weight and all this ridiculousness purely because there just wasn't a source of good information or something that you could Google easily and get good information on. So When I started TFD, that was the goal was to provide the combat sports community with a good platform that provided good evidence-based nutrition so that these athletes could use it to mitigate all of these problems that come from making weight. I've always believed that I think it's so ridiculous that athletes put themselves in such harm as a prerequisite to go into a fight sport. Like You're going into a sport that's essentially a blood sport that's dangerous enough as it is. Why do you put yourself through that process and nearly kill yourself before you go and do that? So that's what we've worked really hard and trying to change around the communities around Australia and New Zealand, and hopefully worldwide now changing that culture around how people perceive weight cutting. Yeah, yeah.
2: Have you, any, have you had any savage weight cuts? Me, I, I water loaded and I, I had like a same day thing. Uh, for one of the trials, but two of the trials actually I water loaded for it and I think I was going from like 82 to 76.9. Oof. And <laughs> yeah, it was the same day and I had these like fast ingesting like carbohydrate things you could pour in a drink. But ultimately I just felt fucked and like after the, fir- <laughs> <laughs> after, after the first match, that was it basically. Like my second match, I, I think I guessed like not terribly, but quicker than I, I expected to. Yeah. And yeah, I just I just didn't look healthy at all. And yeah, because it was the same day, I feel like you just can't hydrate that quickly. Yeah, that yeah. That was just that was a bad idea. Yes. So yeah, then I moved up to eighty eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> just eat a shitload all the time. Yeah, exactly.
0: I was listening to one of your podcasts earlier, Jordi How you talking about like being in the bullpen, especially as a white but as well, only just passing out? How it's like it was like people would think about just like the. the the task of just making the weight and forgetting about that they had a fucking competition to go and compete in. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, I made the weight. It's like now you got to go fucking compete. Making the weight is one thing, but I, so it's it's nice to see. I think hopefully some of that culture, especially as a fucking white belt, is is starting to disappear a little bit.
2: I lot people do it because they feel like they should do it, yeah. rather than actually like needing. You don't need to go in the lower weight division if you're a white belt. Like, what does it matter whether you win or lose? It's just like you feel like you should cut weight. As it's it's part of the comp yeah. process, <laughs> just to fit in nicely, but it's
1: not really necessary.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, like jujitsu is an interesting one, right? Because everyone knows that guy at the gym, and every gym has it—is that like little phenom, right? That's like this tall, and they just tap everyone, and like they're probably like a purple belt that's just a wizard, and they tap everyone regardless. Like jujitsu is an interesting sport because it's so technical, right? And like, don't get me wrong, like I've been in competitions before where. I've fully locked in and cranked on an armbar with this behemoth in an open weight category. And he's literally just picked me up and slammed me off his arm. Like that, that is a real thing. There is like a size discrepancy, but jujitsu is so technical, right? Where, especially in the lower belts, like if you're a white or blue belt, it's probably not going to play that big or you probably don't have enough of a developed game to use your weight properly, even if you did have a weight advantage. Right. And then, because like you said, you're so stuffed by the time you get there, you're already starting two steps behind and then you're playing catch up and you're probably still trying to figure out how to handle this testosterone dump. And you're trying to figure out, okay, how do I relax and actually execute a game plan? All of these things and weight cutting is just probably not the best idea. I can somewhat see it when you get up there and you get to like, you know, levels like ADCC and things like that, where if you don't cut weight, there is a huge size discrepancy and such a wrestling heavy, competition yeah that could be somewhat of a consideration but for the lower level guys it's just not worth it it's is yeah. not worth it I
0: think that kind of brings a good question to like being like oh I, I, maybe i should cut weight so it's like a part of the process kind of thing what's your recommendation about people cutting weight so obviously at bjj and mma is completely different but like for i think you're giving up some stats like for bjj like you should definitely in even mma you shouldn't be cutting more than like five to ten percent of your weight
1: I've changed my opinion of this over the years. Hey, I think if you look at the research and you look at physiology, it's very, very possible that the human body, you can manipulate 10% of your walk around body weight by manipulating fluid throughout the different compartments in your body. And that's when I say that I'm not talking about weight loss. You do your, your weight loss phase before you get to this fight week or competition week. And then Three to five days out, you start manipulating particular nutrients in your body, whether that's carbohydrates, fiber, sodium, et cetera. And what that does is it shifts fluid through different compartments in your body. And we know for sure that you can do that to up to about 10%. And then if you guys are sciencey, you know what a bell curve is, right? Like, Right in the middle of the bell curve is about 10%. We know we have people either side of that. So some people, and we have clients that can do up to 13, 14% and we can be completely fine. But on the other end, we also have clients that can only do, you know, four 5% and they start struggling from there. But we know for a fact, you can manipulate 10% of fluid in your body if you do it properly, pretty safely. And we see it in other sports. You look at marathon running. It's very, very common that elite level marathon runners will lose up to 10% of their weight in fluid and obviously breaking down glycogen and everything else by the time they finish their event and they're elite level runners that are breaking world records So losing that amount of weight isn't necessarily out of the normal for what the human body can handle. But the caveat to that is that you have to know how to do that properly. And that's what a lot of athletes do not understand. I can go to them and and say, hey, you can lose 10%. They go, oh, cool. And they just eat a can of tuna all week. And then they stop drinking water for three, four days. And they start jumping in the sauna every day for three days leading up to weigh-ins. That's very different to if you have an athlete who's, glycogen loaded fiber loaded salt loaded drinks a good amount of water throughout camp and then they go into that fight week and they have a very very structured fight week or acute weight loss plan where they're ripping out these nutrients and manipulating fluid and then they have a very set amount that they want to sweat and they've done heat acclimation so you know their body's physiologically primed to sweat they're not going to lose too many electrolytes that's a very different case and so i'm very hesitant nowadays to say to athletes yeah you can lose 10 percent of your body weight in an MMA or 24-hour setting because I really don't believe we're at a point where enough people have access to information where they can do that properly. There's going to be a lot of athletes that can do it. I just don't believe we're there. And so as a team, we made the decision we recommend 6 to 8%. And that's what we've been enforcing with our athletes. And this is a 24-hour weigh-ins. And then when we go back and look at things like jujitsu that have same-day weigh-ins or you weigh in the morning and then you compete a few hours later, we say three to five, five at an absolute maximum during that week. And the lower, the better. That's really what we've been promoting. we've done it with a lot of athletes. And the more that I do it and the more exposure I get to it and the more levels I see, where you know, this guy does it at this level and how do they go competitively and this guy does it at this level. I just don't think the competitive advantage to cutting weight is really there. And I think it's very overstated. I think that people just as a whole don't know how to do it properly so when we're recommending how much people should do, we should really play it on the safe side. Yeah. yeah,
2: true.
0: And then they go and they just completely compromise their performance for, for what shouldn't have even been compromised in the first place.
1: Yeah. yeah. And that's the crazy thing, right? Is that even with all the science that we have, like we're still up in the air. Like if you read all the literature, like we don't really know how much of an effect it has because when we look at combat sports, there's so many different components and facets of what makes up a good performance, right? Like, I always use the example of someone can have a quick one-minute knockout and then someone could have, go through a five-round war and at the end of the day, the result is exactly the same, right? But how you arrived at that result was very different. So the person who gets the quick knockout could probably get away with cutting a lot of weight because the energy expenditure is not going to be there, whereas that guy that went through the five-round war is obviously going to feel those effects. So I always say to our athletes, why risk it? Like, Why risk it? You're not getting paid to make weight. Like, You don't, you don't get belts to make weight. You get paid to fight and you get sponsorships to fight so i just say that the risk versus reward for missing weight and then making weight is just so low like focus on fighting making weight it should not be the goal
0: Mm. that's a good point as well like it's very subjective obviously you got the two ends of the bell curve it's like i you can't give you can't give someone a straight answer because it could be this it could be that and it's going to be completely subjective to that individual
1: Yeah, and we see that a lot, right? Individually, some guys just naturally, and there are physiological properties that are more favorable to cutting weight. I think this is an interesting conversation as well and something I'm very careful with and something I've realized, especially since we've grown as a platform and say we work with people like Israel Adesanya and Alexander Volkanovsky, two very, very, very good examples of what I'm about to say is that elite level sport and in any sport, there tends to be a filtering process. Like you look at American sport, the filtering process is how they go through high school as an athlete. Then they go through the college system and then they go into a draft system. They usually go to a combine and then they go to the big leagues. And all of that is a filtering system to get the most elite people, right? When we yeah. look at sports like combat sports and it's particularly the UFC MMA, there's not that much of a filtering process, but making weight seems to be one of these filtering processes where the elite level guys tend to have certain physiological characteristics that are more favorable for making weight. And the reason why this is risky and the reason why I bring it up and talk about it so often is because when you look at my social media and you might look at the numbers, and this is a big reason why we don't release the numbers of what Israel Adesanya and Alexander Volkanovsky do, they're probably at that end of the bell curve where they can cut more weight than what the average person looking at my Instagram can do because they are physiologically have these traits that are more favorable for cutting weight, whether that they're a higher salt sweater, saltier salt sweater, they've got naturally high more lean muscle mass than the average person for their height and weight. These things are more favorable for making weight. And so they'll be able to push that limit and get on the end of that bell curve a bit more. Whereas when the average person looking at that probably won't be able to do that. So that's why I always take, take a bit of stride and take a step back and always say to people, okay, you're looking at these guys, at these top guys at the UFC and they're making weight. What you need to remember is that they've probably gone through this filtering process where they have these characteristics that allow them to do that. Because we all know guys in the gym that struggle making weight. And it's not necessarily because they're super lazy or they're not using a good system. Their body just probably isn't as favored towards doing that as these top level guys. And you see that a lot throughout the UFC and you see it particularly with people who continuously struggle to make weight because they may not have these characteristics that are favorable for it and then through that filtering process they usually get dropped and kicked out so you're left with these guys at the top end that have all these characteristics favorable for making weight and it creates this kind of skewed response in the public of what's achievable and what's not wow how many people in the UFC do you reckon just don't cut weight
2: are there any he's he's the guy to ask (laughs)
1: So, so I, I don't know if I should I should say this, but <laughs> so the USC PI keep keep records of all of this, right? And I have a really good close working relationship with with the PI guys like Clint Wattenberg and Charles Stool and Nicole Ally and all those guys that that are out there, and they keep records, right? And they keep these athletes weights and when you're at a UFC event you they check your weight every single day from when you rock up and then they check your weight before like obviously at weigh-ins and 24 hours after and before you go out there they check so they've got all this spread of data and what it's showing is that yeah every every athlete there cuts weight and the reason that they do cut weight is because you, you don't really have an option not to not at that level because you guys you guys both train I assume so you guys appreciate that when you fight someone that is really, really skilled, it's not fun when you're getting punched by them when they're 10 kilos heavier. Like that is, that is a real thing. Like if anyone's listening to this and you haven't been punched by someone 10 kilos every go in the gym, just ask that big guy to throw a little jab at your chin. You feel the difference. Like you really feel that difference. And at the UFC, at that top level, when these guys are cutting weight, if you're a lightweight and you're 70 kilos, you have to almost be walking around between 77 and 85 kilos because everyone in that division is walking around at that weight. And it's this weird system where, because everyone's cutting weight, everyone kind of has to do it because the guy that's walking around 70 kilos naturally would be so undersized for the division to the point where it does become dangerous. He's fighting someone who's 15 kilos heavier. them and at that level at that skill level when you've got these guys who are ridiculously powerful ridiculously skillful that is a danger to that person so it's this weird catch 22 where to get away from that danger we all put ourselves through this other danger that is cutting weight to make sure that we're all the same size and it's a funny thing because it doesn't really stop or there's no way to fix it until everyone unanimously agrees hey let's stop cutting weight and let's do our natural weight because there's always going to be these discrepancies and people aren't going to agree with the weight discrepancies because they don't want to be the smaller guy in the fight.
2: Toxic. Would you say it's less important for like wrestling and stuff like that, then where you don't necessarily get punched in the head?
1: I think I would argue that for grappling sports, it's probably more of a consideration if you, if you're heavier, I think if you're in a position where you can enforce your weight directly on someone, yeah. And you can do that without giving up, say cardio or your endurance, then it, it's far better. Cause if you look at really talented strikers, there's a lot more of like an evasive game plan, right? Like you can get a very talented striker and you can move and bob and move in between. Like you can move and not get hit. You can be faster. It's it's much more difficult if you've got someone who's bigger, who's like knows how to drive their hips down and can pin you to the floor. It's very hard to hip escape out of that, the bridge out to even wrestle stand up fight hands when that person is so much heavier so i think in the grappling sports and we see that in the literature as well i know that for a fact one being an athlete myself and then working with so many guys when you're grappling with heavier guys you definitely feel that weight with the heavier guys striking we tend to see both in the literature and in practice you could probably get away with that little bit more of a size discrepancy fair enough you wouldn't have thought that
0: yeah. Interesting about the UFC is it's just like this vicious cycle of weight cutting. It's just <laughs> a toxic, a toxic weight, a
1: toxic cycle. Fuck one championship doesn't do that. It really is. And I think that's a, a big thing with the company, right? With TFD. And a lot of people ask me like, what's it like working with those guys? What's it like worth working with, you know, pound for pound best fighters in the world. And I say, it's great. Not necessarily because it's great to be able to say, Oh, I work with the best fighter in the world, but more if we go back to what the mission and the vision was of the company when I started all those years ago, it was to change, the cultural perception and the community perception of weight cutting for the better. And the only way you can do this, and I'll argue with academics, with athletes, with commissions, I'll argue with them till the cows come home. The only way you do that is to change culture within gyms at the grassroots level. I don't care how many real changes you put in place. I don't care how many different weigh-in structures that you make. Athletes are always going to cut weight because they're stuck in this vicious cycle. The only way we stop that is if we get the young guys coming up who look up and idolize the guys like Israel Adesanya, Alexander Volkanovsky. They look at them and they go, Oh, Volk doesn't cut that much weight, or Volk cuts weight with a nutritionist and he does it really smartly and really intelligently. Oh, that's the cool thing to do. You know what? I want to be like Volk and I'm not going to do these stupid weight cuts. That's how you make long progressive change in this area and get culture change. So that's what I always say. That was always the goal of working with those athletes. It was never like to get there and be like, oh, you know what? Look at this. We work with these guys. It's just, I know for a fact, if you want to make meaningful change in the culture and community, you need to get these guys because that's what's going to be most impactful for the culture and community of the gyms at the grassroots level. True that. Nice.
0: I you brought up a good point about same day weigh-ins, um, one of your pods, or maybe it was your course. Anyway, about like, like in consideration to your three to 5% rule as well, uh, like just being planned and organized, having a clear structure. Cause like obviously jujitsu tournaments, you don't, they don't need to surprise you. You can easily plan for them. You don't just need to go, oh, it's a tournament. I can just like, it's, it surprised me. And I'm just going to cut all this weight this week. So like have a, have a clear fucking plan. And be like, okay, by this date, I'm going to weigh this amount. And then if you really wanted to cut down, it's like rather than thinking about cutting out carbohydrates or sodium, which is going to severely compromise your performance, think about obviously going into the, to the fight week, like cutting out fiber can, make, can add like 2 to 3% of your weight cut, which is a huge percent, especially if you're only, going, if you're only working with that 5%
1: yeah exactly you're right like everything that happens it's bad when it comes to weight cutting is the unknown or if you haven't planned for it and really especially with jiu-jitsu you compete so frequently so you should have plenty of opportunities to play around with these strategies and see how your body responds so you should be able to have a tournament where you get ready and okay how much weight can i actually lose each week for say three to four weeks and then still feel good at training and not like drag my knuckles and feel terrible or get like to the yep. end of drilling and then you start rolling and be like oh my god I got nothing in the tank for these rolls you shouldn't be feeling like that so you should have a very clear idea of how many calories and how much fuel can I get in my body while still reaching my weekly weight loss goals and then when it comes to that that weight cut week that competition week if you do want to cut weight okay what are the low risk strategies I can use such as you know a light water load or water manipulation or a low fiber strategy, which every jiu-jitsu athlete should be using. And how does my body respond to it? Because like you said, doing a low fiber, you can still eat plenty of carb. You can drink water. You can have salt. And you can still manipulate your body weight for 2 3%, which is a pretty sim- significant amount of weight, which is still probably enough if you have dieted for a couple of weeks to get you down in that weight class. But you can still perform. Once you get in the bullpen, you won't feel terrible. You won't have a crazy need to rapidly rehydrate or like shove down your carbohydrate drink and then feel terrible. You'll feel pretty good when you get in there. And then you'll feel good for, you know, if you're going through like a tournament style and you've got four or five matches at that you should be able to keep up with the work rate because you're not compromised for cutting all that weight and doing stupid things.
0: Mm. It's a classic thing, isn't it? Like people just cutting out like all carbohydrates and just fucking just the training goes to shit like weeks prior to to the tournament you're know, like you're just wasting time here you're not getting anything out of your training you're getting worse you, you're decreasing your confidence and you're going to come into the co- competition compromise and possibly injured from all the shit training that you've
1: done yeah i always say to our athletes to become a better athlete it's the adaptation to each training session over time right so you look at an athlete that say they train 300 days of the year You've got 300 opportunities to respond to the goal of that training session and your nutrition isn't necessarily going to directly make you a better athlete, but it will give you the fuel to be able to achieve the goal of the training session. So if your training session is a high anaerobic training session and say, I don't know, you're doing sparring and you're really going hard you, and you have to get your heart rate up here and keep that intensity for a prolonged period of time. You have to have the fuel in your tank to be able to do that. Like eating fuel is not going to make you a better jujitsu athlete. Getting on the mats and training is going to make you a better jujitsu athlete. But what the fuel is going to do is be able to keep you on the mats and allow you to create those adaptations through the training. So if you take athletes that say train 300 days of the year and they get it right 90% of the time, that athlete is going to be so much better off in two, three years time than the guy that say gets it right half of the time and then they get 150 training sessions right the adaptation the accumulation of those adaptations over time is going to be so much more favorable for the guy that gets their nutrition right and is fueled properly both before and after for their training and recovery to elicit those positive training adaptations big time
0: we talk about this a fair bit on the podcast. Like people be like, "Oh my! Ca- like how do I improve my cardio? Like how do I you know, have more energy for jiu jitsu? Like what kind of cardio should be doing? Should I be doing?" It's like the first things first. Like, eat more. what is your fucking what is your nutrition look like? Tell me about that. Let's talk about that first because so many, so many, I'm sure you would have had this a lot as well, Geordie. It's like they 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 come into the gym tired. They they're wondering why they have no energy before they train, and it's like you look at their nutrition. Like, what'd you eat today? Oh, a sandwich. at morning like in the morning and then nothing all day and then i trained in the evening it's like no
2: wonder you're tired yeah a huge and amount of people do the uh basically just fast like all day basically until they get home yeah and i always wonder how you do it that just seems horrible <laughs> to me yeah seems exhausting yeah it's a big thing we changed with like
0: with the, the owens nutrition and like you talked about it as well in your uh podcast with craig jones it's like mate you just need to get the calories in whether yeah, you're, you're eating in and out or extra ice cream or Fuck, like whatever. You just need to get those calories in because you need to fuel your workouts. Obviously, you can you can get into like the nitty gritty stuff, like the fast carbohydrates, simple carbohydrates before training, etc. But it's like, like first of all, get your calories in.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's the baseline, right? Like people get really confused about this, and I think it's a bit more confusing if, say, you're not an athlete and you're not training a lot and you don't can't really appreciate how much calories you burn say if you're training twice a day and you're doing prolonged training sessions and how that feels when you're under fueling so i think the everyday person who say works in an office and maybe goes for a walk here and there you probably don't have to be putting that many extra calories in so the idea of having to put say four or five thousand calories in per day just to meet your energy demands is just so crazy right but at all of nutrition before you even start talking about nutrition quality and training nutrition and everything else, you need to make sure you have a baseline level of calories to support your bodily function. And this is a huge thing, like you guys said, and just alluded to a lot of athletes just get that wrong. They just rock up to training and they're chronically underfueled. So no wonder they feel like crap. No wonder they're not recovering. And that's an accumulative effect where they're just beating their body down every single day, even if they're eating quote unquote healthy, but you're under fueling you're still not going to be putting in enough fuel for your body to repair properly. So you're just over time going to be breaking your body down. So this is why a lot of people get like really mind bended when you say, Hey, like, and look at Craig, like Craig, you have to eat like in and out because it's just, you can do it with healthy foods with like chicken rice and vegetables and everything else. It's just very, very hard to reach those calorie limits when you're doing that. So you have to have a degree of processed foods And when I say that, the caveat is obviously you have a good base where you're hitting all your nutrition quality standards. So you're getting all the micronutrients, you're getting all the vitamins and minerals, you're hitting your protein, you're hitting your carbs, hitting your fats, all of those things. You're you're ticking those off, but still you can tick all those things off and still be under fueled. And over time, that'll break down your body. You won't be able to repair properly. And you'll feel like crap when you rock up to training. So to make up that energy deficit, we have to use foods like that. Otherwise you're just going to constantly be bloated. You're constantly going to be eating and then eating becomes a chore and we don't need to get into it. But there comes this like, whole mental thing with that as well and that can be negative
0: we call that the ronnie coleman effect man <laughs> you're sitting there just fucking eating oats or eating whatever just oh, punishing just yourself chicken. Just <laughs> so much chicken, there's only so much That's in it. chicken and broccoli you can eat yeah. yeah it's a good point talking about the calorie density of foods so it's like what's what's calorie dense like adding extra butter to your meals or oil or having the in-and-out you know, meal Audible. or like uh peanut, p- peanut butter yeah. do you know what i mean get the calorie density in because you need to make up that baseline to the bare minimum I think another interesting point that we're talking about is like that craig brought up is like once i started eating and at least hitting my calorie baseline
2: i stopped getting sick as much and i stopped getting staff as much oh yeah yeah <laughs> yeah the staff is true i feel like that's just part of being run down though isn't it just having like a low immune system that any sort of cut gets gets infected yeah
0: yeah what's your shot on that geordie in, in terms of like at least hitting it like you said if you're not hitting your calorie baseline as a minimum you're just constantly break, beating yourself down and just break, breaking down to your immune system surely that's going to have some effect on getting staph or ringworm or any kind of any other
1: infections yeah absolutely it's, it's this acute and chronic low energy availability right which is essentially like i was saying you're just not giving your body enough fuel for basic physiological function and you see this so much with elite level guys like craig was training twice a day hard too like he's training with some of the best grapplers in the world and they train hard like they train really hard they burn a lot of calories and he just wasn't putting in enough of the right fuel and even though he was like he was still doing well and he felt okay he was just constantly run down he was always picking up illnesses because like i said when you're under fueling chronically over time you're just beating your body down And one of the effects that we see from chronic low energy availability or LEA is a decreased immunity. You become immunocompromised is what we call it. So you're so much more susceptible for picking up illnesses, for picking up infections. So if that staff is going around the gym, you even get exposed to it. Your immune system, your initial defense is just not there. So it's more than likely that you're going to get an infection. You see this all the time with athletes at the back end of their fight camp, comp camp, whatever it is, they're getting ready for competition the last two weeks so many of them get a flu or get a cold and they just can't kick it and it's because they're in this state of chronic lea or low energy availability and their immune system is just next to nothing because their body is just sparing and rationing the calories they do have and they're going well what's most essential here and the immune system gets you know a third of what it needs to prepare all the soldiers to defend away from these illnesses that's such your point
0: you got sick before ADCC, didn't
2: you? Yeah, basically, you always get sick before before <laughs> a competition. But I normally do it like so far before that. By the time it comes to it, I've started heat, Like I've I've basically gotten back <laughs> to not being ill again. Yeah, which is nice a nice way to go around it. Nice. Yeah. Also, like I feel like if I just start resting slightly more in the run up to the competitions now, so I don't straight away get ill, and yeah. that seems to work pretty well. Because yeah, if you're cutting weight or something, or you're just not eating well enough because you're training really hard, then I guess having like actually having a rest day occasionally might might be the way to like stave off just a flu or yeah. staff or something like that without necessarily have to change the ET so yeah that's a key way of going about it
0: massively We got asked asked a lot of questions about hydration around training and electrolytes, and obviously that's gonna pay a big, big factor into energy levels and concentration levels in the gym, especially when when trying to understand techniques and even getting through hard sparring. How much effect does um, hydration have towards, as you get the water, how much effect does hydration have um, for like concentration rates, ability to like carry on performance um, during matches and during
1: training? yeah it's massive right like people don't really appreciate how much our body depends on fluid and water right like we're 60 70 percent fluid and pretty much i'd say most of the reactions in your body occur in a body of water in some some capacity right and i've seen this time and time again where athletes will just Become very used to training in a state of mild or moderate or severe dehydration. And I've even seen it so far, say, old school boxing gyms where they won't allow their athletes to sit water because it's like weak or you're training to be tough. And you know, spoke
0: about this earlier. Yeah. So Owen used to do judo. I yeah, don't know, you got some too. judo stories as well. I had Fionn Davies on earlier as well. And she was talking about the old school yeah, yeah. judo it's, mentalities. There's
1: no water allowed during training. Um, yeah. remember. The thing is, is that a lot of things that happen in training that we just attribute to being, oh, I'm just working hard or I'm just, I'm tired or whatever. Usually what I found over my years of practice, especially with like city kickboxing, top level guys, is that is just mild or moderate dehydration. It's a very, very, very fixable thing. If you just put more effort into your hydration strategy throughout the day and around training, you fix a lot of these things. Like a lot of the things that I was hearing complaints of is, Oh man, my reaction time is just, you know, I feel like I can't slip punches or if you're doing jujitsu, it's like, Oh man, I'm usually like two steps ahead, but I'm like, they're just catching me on things that I wouldn't normally be caught on. Or like, I'm not as like slick with my passes or I'm not hitting my subs and getting my hips in the right position or their overall strength. They're like, I'm just tiring. not as explosive. I can't like hip out of these things. And it's like, well, man, yes, there's going to be a large component of that conditioning, but first, Let's check out what your hydration is. And more often than not, these guys were training in the morning. So they're losing, you know, two to 5% of their body weight. And then what's everyone do after training? They go for food and they get like a can of like diet Coke or Coke, no sugar. They have that. And then that's it for fluid. And they won't even look at a bottle of water and then they'll eat food. But then, which is great. You're replacing calories and carbs and whatever, but you haven't replaced that fluid. Go on throughout your day. You're walking around, whatever go back to your evening session, you're already still dehydrated and then you go into another session. And then what do they do after that? They get another like, I don't know, no sugar, soft drink or pop or whatever. They have that might have two cans of it and then a Gatorade, but still nowhere near enough fluid to get their body back up to baseline. So they're perpetually in this state of mild to moderate dehydration. And that was one of the biggest things and the biggest aha moments I had is, wow, we can fix a lot of these problems by just making sure these guys have adequate training hydration, hydration protocols and good hydration protocols throughout the day. And there's so many athletes just get this wrong. And it's by far, I think the easiest thing, you don't even have to be an athlete. I say this to our corporate guys we work with, our guys that work on job sites, whatever. I say the easiest thing you can do with your nutrition to get immediate return for your investment is grab a bottle of water and drink two to three liters of it per day and replace your sweat losses through training. You will instantly feel so much better. And a lot of these problems that I was seeing with these guys, they went away once we started really getting in the deep end and really monitoring and enforcing these hydration protocols with them. Huge. That's
0: a good baseline to start with. So like as a baseline, two to three liters a day, do that to start with. And then I guess a way of, figuring out your sweat rate is like okay just weigh yourself before training in whatever whatever uniform you're going to wear and weigh yourself after training and just make sure that that is replaced
1: yeah exactly and, and the cool thing about that is that the way your body sweats is quite predictable right so you only have to do it for certain environments and it's really easy when we look at combat sports it's a bit different when you look at like endurance sports and cyclists and guys that are in different conditions when they're training say inside versus outside versus yeah. you've got wind coming up against you but when you're in the gym and it's the same gym every single day and it's you know same time of year it's not like the cha- weather changes that dramatic at least where we are it doesn't change that dramatically day to day you can be pretty confident that you'll be able to predict your sweat rate depending on how much time you're in there and the intensity of that workout. So you don't have to be weighing yourself every single time. Do it for a couple sessions and then you'll get very, very good at understanding, okay, through this session, I know I'm going to lose 1.5 liters per hour of sweat. So I need to replace that. For this session, I'm only going to lose 500. So I need to replace that. But that's first and foremost. Every athlete should know that. You should know that off the back of your hand. This type of session for this long, I'm going to lose this much. I need to replace that. But it's almost scary. I would say how many athletes don't know that,
2: mate. It's crazy. That's a that's a that's a big key detail. Yeah, people weigh themselves after training, but I don't think they weigh
0: themselves before training for the most part. No, they weigh yeah. themselves after, and they think they like they weigh themselves like a couple of days before. They're like, oh, I yeah. lost weight. It's like, well, in the morning, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how much? Uh, how how important do you think um, like hydrolyte tablets are? In comparison to just drinking water or like orange juice or something straight after training. Obviously, orange juice got calories in it, but it does hydrate you a bit faster than water. How, uh, how important do you think those hydration tablets are for a lot of jiu-jitsu folks training hard?
1: I think it depends on a couple of factors. I think it depends on how much like electrolytes you're getting from your food. If you eat a very bland, quote unquote, clean diet, you're probably not getting as much electrolytes as you need. A lot of people don't understand when you're sweating, you're not just losing water and fluid you're losing electrolytes in that sweat as well and when we think about sweating like we just said there's going to be your sweat rate which is the amount of water that you lose per hour but they're also going to be how much electrolytes you lose per liter of fluid so you need to be able to identify okay am i a mild salt sweater am i a medium salt sweater am I a high salt sweater and people will usually know just intuitively like you can go to a lab and do tests and everything but you'll know intuitively, like if you're sweating and you taste it and it's quite salty, if you've got scratches on your eyes, they start stinging. If you're wearing like a dark shirt and you see those sweat stains after training, that's usually good indications that you're a high salt sweater and you probably need to pay attention to the electrolyte strategy you have around training. Because this is another thing that, and, and we don't need to go too deep because it can get quite complicated, is if you're a high salt sweater and you're losing a lot of fluid, and you're not replacing those electrolytes it's going to be difficult for your body to get that fluid back where you need it before you start training the next time so you could be very diligent and on top of your fluid and replacing water but if you've lost a lot of those electrolytes and you're in an electrolyte deficit then your body isn't going to be able to move that fluid into the parts of your body that you need it to to adequately hydrate yourself before you start training again. So when we talk about electrolyte supplements and electrolyte strategies with guys, some guys, yeah, you you do need a really, really tight one. Some guys you don't because we all know that guy that like jumps in a sauna and barely sweats. And then the guy that like doesn't really lose a lot of fluids, probably not as important for those guys. For anyone that trains and sweats a lot, if you're a high sweater or if you notice that it's very salty, I always encourage them, hey, you probably need to look a bit more deeper and at least try an electrolyte strategy to make sure you're getting that fluid back into your body.
0: Nice, that's a good point I've never thought of before.
1: Yeah, just <laughs> make sure that you're constantly taking
2: a le- Like someone like Max, he sweats a shit ton. a yeah, 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 we've got a guy that sweats a lot, and you can almost smell it smell the salt in the sweat. <laughs> he's sweating his fucking salty. Yeah, shit. yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. yeah. Also notice when I haven't trained, let's say like take a little rest from training then you come back the the, salt, the sweat will be like extremely salty compared to the usual. Yeah. I feel like it's hard to get fully back to my, like my normal salty state <laughs> <laughs> like without when just training taking a rest consistently. From, from Jiu-Jitsu yeah, for a little while. Yeah, exactly, I haven't trained uh, consistently. Yeah. yeah notice that every time, like if I, if it's a little break or come back, the salt, the sweat will be like extremely like
0: Salty. I don't know, yeah, <laughs>
1: silty.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That, that, that's an adaptation to training, right? And like when you do heat acclimation, when your body gets better at sweating, like you get better at recruiting sweat glands, but then you also, your body gets better at preserving that electrolyte that you lose. So primarily the sodium. And when you take a bit of time off, you obviously lose that stimulus That's causing that adaptation. And so when you come back to it, your body's not going to be as good as preserving that sodium. So it makes sense and you get higher, saltier sweat. And that's a that's a benefit, right? And I say to combat athletes, if you do train in any hot environment or you do cut weight and you need sweat to do that, it's probably advantageous to get some heat acclimation training in because it brings on your sweat faster and you sweat more for a given amount of time, but you lose less electrolytes per liter of sweat as an adaptation to that heat acclimation.
2: Wow. Would you say that someone that trains every day, like let's say sweats every day, would still need to do the same heat acclimation to, to be able to sweat, for example, in a sauna?
1: Like it's not, it doesn't transmit over. I mean, the, the adaptation to heat acclimation really doesn't matter on the modality. It, it depends how your body responds to your core body temperature going up. So say if you're training That's a, a day in a gi, like if you're in a gear and you've got a rashi underneath it like you can get quite warm it's pretty much like having a hoodie on and going for a run right so you could probably get the same adaptations if someone goes in and they're you know mankini or whatever in the in the sauna and just sits in there and it's quite hot you could probably get similar adaptations training in a gee. Okay. That's, nice.
0: second that's a key point um there's a couple more questions Yordi, of um one of your bodies talking about weight fluctuations day to day. Obviously, how drastic some some like someone's weight can go up and down. What kind of like some key factors that you'd see in someone's weight going up and down like drastically throughout the day? Like, oh, oh in this example, laid up to ABCC, one the week before, he was like eighty-seven
2: kgs. Yeah, I went from, I like in a day I'll put on and take off like five kilos. I reckon that's huge. Yeah, yeah, just from eating and drinking. Maybe being slightly dehydrated when I wake up, then like big glass of water, then another bottle of water throughout training, and then just eating for the rest of the day. I feel like I could put on like a good six or seven kilos if I actually tried. So, so obviously going like water content, glycogen storages,
0: fiber, um, like stomach content, like and like heat transmission in the body. What 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 kind of other factors are, are those? The main factors I would attribute
1: to that. Yeah, that's pretty pretty much it, right? Like two things there. Talk about a fluid and food, and I think the first one, fluid, is like you obviously keep fluid in different compartments in your body. So if you're drinking lots of water, you're obviously not just going to you know, just drink water and it just falls out the other end of your body. It obviously stays in there and goes through a few different compartments. So if you're having a lot of fluid one day or late at night, you're probably going to wake up and be heavier. Vice versa, that like you said, if you're dehydrated, you're going to be lighter eating food like that food has to physically go through your intestines like your intestines are really really long and it can take three to five days to pass food through them so people don't realize is that when you eat food that food is yes it's broken down but it still has a physical weight to it and that's going to contribute if you had a big day i don't know say you went to a buffet and just railed the pasta at the buffet or whatever and like you're probably going to be heavier for the next couple of days on top of that when you look at your energy reserves glycogen's a big one right so glycogen you hold water and fluid. So you hold glycogen in your muscles and your liver. If you eat a lot of carbohydrates, you'll stock them up. And then that glycogen also holds a certain amount of water with every gram of glycogen in there. So when you're eating a lot of food, you're obviously going to be stocking up your weight and going, seeing that on the scale. And like you said, depending on the environment you're in, if you sleep in a hot environment, you're sweating overnight, sweet sweating in a cool environment. There's other things that can contribute like with females, like certain hormones can contribute to water retention and, water loss but they're probably the biggest ones your fluid status your food status and then what your energy reserves like and i think on that note i think it's important that athletes understand that you probably should be familiar and comfortable with what your weight is when you're fully loaded and that should become your normal because a lot of athletes and i understand this and i get it because i used to do this when i was competing a lot and having to weigh in you like seeing the lower number on the scale so you purposely do everything subconsciously whether you're aware of it or not you dehydrate yourself the day before. You slack on your carbs. You like don't need any fiber. Go for a run before you go to bed to get rid of some of that fluid. So you wake up and you see what that weight is in a depleted state. You should get very familiar and comfortable with knowing what your weight is in a fully loaded state because that's important. When you want to compete, you want to be as close to that loaded state as possible. So you need to know what your body weight is when you're fully loaded up that's a good detail
2: personally i prefer prefer seeing my weight getting getting bigger to be honest <laughs> it's more satisfying just on the gains, yeah yeah just getting bigger each day how would you say it would you say you conserve more weight overnight if you sleep in a cold environment like is that a big difference or is that just going to be like very minor
1: weight difference um, i yes and no it depends right because You would probably lose more weight, I would say, if you you slept in a really cold environment because when you sleep in a hot environment, you're going to lose it primarily through sweat, like sweating out because your body's hot and you're trying to cool your body back down. You probably lose more weight if you're in a colder environment and your body has to actively increase your metabolism to keep your body temperature up. So when we talk about, I don't know if you guys have ever heard the term floating weight overnight, when you sleep and then you wake up lighter, we call it like an overnight float. And we use it a lot in the fight week when we're cutting weight. And we tell all of our guys to crank the air conditioning up because when you're asleep, one, your body temperature has to drop for you to get to sleep. So it makes that easier. But if your core body temperature dips down a bit lower, your body has to actively metabolize to keep it hotter, to keep it warmer. And then what happens then is you're going to keep breathing out more fluid you're going to breathe out more fluid as a byproduct of all the reactions going on to keep your body warm and so you're likely going to lose more fluid when you wake up and be more dehydrated so oh, yeah that's
2: counterintuitive i would so what do you reckon just like a comfy temperature would be the best to maintain
1: weight yeah yeah to, to right. maintain i don't necessarily know if you're like if you should have a set goal to maintain weight when you go to bed, I think it's, <laughs> I'm trying to gain, gain weight if possible. If I could eat in my sleep, I'd probably do it. <laughs> I would set it at a temperature where like your core body temperature has to drop by one degrees for you to go to sleep. So if you I don't know, had a room at say 21, 22 degrees and you had like a good blanket on you, then yeah, that's probably your best bet. I wouldn't recommend going like completely starkers and dropping it down to 16 in an effort, like shiver your way through to lighter weight, but yeah, whatever's comfy.
0: <laughs> you should to keep on that Ronnie Coleman effect, man. Keep the calories yeah, high. just keep eating and keep the temperature just
2: like back on. <laughs> just sailing through. Yeah, not too hot, not too cold. Nice, man. <laughs> do
0: you have any other questions for Jordy? Uh
2: No, I was just thinking of them as you were talking, to be honest. I didn't have any uh, any planned questions yeah. Are there any left.
0: No, we've kind of like covered everything we'd, we'd, we'd like to kind of ask you. What do you think of uh, Volkanovsky and um, Islam? that's gonna be an interesting (laughs) photo how do you say his Um, last name
1: that was close
0: enough that's close enough
1: yeah yeah it's uh it'll be um very interesting like me and his strength conditioning coach have already gone back and forth and we're coming up with a game plan of just how do we approach it in terms of what we do with his, his body weight and you know power to weight ratio and like we don't have a heap of time right like it's going to be in February next year so what we've got one two three four months so you're not you're not going to make crazy amounts of changes the thing with with Volk is that he's a hugely adaptive athlete so if we put him on not necessarily a strict hypertrophy program but if we put him on a strength program you'll see his legs they just turn into like tree trunks they're crazy so yeah we're, we're discussing what the best way to go is because again if we talk about at that level really what the difference is between winning and losing when you go to the elite, elite level of the UFC and those top organizations, it's who can execute the game plan the best. And really like going into this one, we know what Islam's game plan is going to be. It's going to be wrestle and keep Volk down, right? And then Volk's game plan is obviously keep it on the feet because Volk is arguably one of the best strikers of all time, right? He's just so great with his striking. But then it's like, and I think we we learned a lot of lessons when, when Israel went up and fought Yarn last time. And I think it was 2021, March 2021, right? Where oh, yeah, yeah. Yarn, it wasn't necessarily because Israel wasn't as good or couldn't beat him. Yarn just on the day executed his game plan better, right? So we've got that in the back of our minds and it's like, okay, well, what do we have to do to give Alex the best chance to execute that game plan that his coaches have? So yeah, it, it's a very very interesting for I think it'd be like an absolute banger I I personally think obviously I'm biased towards Volk I won't pick a winner but if anyone can do that I think Volk can absolutely do it he's by far the best athlete I've ever worked with just period out of every sport I've ever worked with Alex Volkanovsky is just not necessarily I wouldn't say the most talented talented. Yeah, yeah not not the most talented athlete but just pure hard work and dedication to his sport it's very very hard to find an athlete that does more than alex
2: you can kind of see that when he fights you can literally see how hard he works like even in the match yeah 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 he legit yeah i love that guy he's man the ball of muscle isn't he he's a fucking savage <laughs> and he used to play like high level professional rugby league as well as
0: a hooker I mean, those, those guys are big cunts as well. you got big Islanders running at you. They're like 110 kg. Alex,
1: everyone's talking about him going up a weight class. And, and we obviously test all of his strength and everything. Alex is stronger than pretty much 99% of the lightweights I have on our books. Like his strength numbers in the gym are better than most of the welterweights we have in our books. So like Alex... Although he's come down and he's changed his body weight to come down to be in a featherweight, and we can make for again, saying what I was saying earlier, there's a bell curve, right, of how much weight you can cut. I never disclose how much Alex actually cuts fight with, I'm pretty sure he said it in podcasts and interviews before, but it's a lot. And I wouldn't ex- put that out publicly because I don't want kids thinking that they can do that. But genetically, he can do it and he moves a lot of weight to get the featherweight. But the beauty of that is that he's retained a lot of that explosiveness and that strength from when he was that huge rugby league player. But he's kept it in this smaller frame. And it's really scary. Like, and if, if you train with him and he gets a hold of you, you feel that it, it, it's terrifying. So I think Markachev would be very, very naive. And I don't think they will to take his grappling and his strength lightly because, you know, like I said, he is probably stronger. Well, I know for a fact he is stronger than most of the welterweights we have on our book. So him going up to lightweight, we're not really concerned of him, you know, getting out-muscled necessarily. That's also a
0: good testament to the weight cut as well. So we've taken him from like X weight down to this weight. Can he retain, can he retain like the most amount of muscle, the most amount of strength and so he can perform as effectively as possible at this lower weight? And then with an effective rehydration method, puts back on X amount of weight so he gets into the, to the cage and he's a fucking stud
1: yeah exactly and and it's something we've perfected over a long time right like you can have all the theory and all the numbers and you can take someone through that process but there's a lot of nuance to it like there's a lot of nuance and nitty-gritty details that probably the everyday person doesn't need to worry about but say for example the process of how you get that weight off when you're cutting weight in a bath or a sauna like what you actually do will have an impact on how good they feel once they're rehydrating so figuring out what heat modalities work best for that person's body the timing of how they need to be in there the switch from when you go from say in the bath into the wraps and how long you spend in each these are things that you know we've worked on for years and years and then once you're rehydrating and again like we don't talk about too publicly nitty-gritty details like when you're coming back up is there an ideal amount of rehydration that allows for better performance can you over can you overhydrate? can you underhydrate? and we've definitely found in other fights that Yeah, you probably can overhydrate and go to a point where you get diminishing returns in terms of strength and cardio. And we figured all of these things out. I think you see that with Alex, We've, we've pretty much got these things absolutely bang on where we know exactly what we have to do at exactly every step of the process. When we're rehydrating, reloading, we know to the gram what weight we need to get back up to for him to be hitting the best numbers in terms of output so it's a very very dialed in science for alex and obviously there's many 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 more factors that come into play when we talk about performance but he just is that diligent and that disciplined with all of them that's why you see such a beast once he gets in there it's like a skill he's trained over his
2: life basically getting better and better weight cuts and just like recovering off of them
1: yeah exactly right it's something that you need to diligently work on right like and we, we do plenty of things to like prep for it, right? And we talk about heat acclimation all the time, but we talk about, you know, making weight. Everyone's got to do it. You've got to do it before you fight. It's the same with your sparring. Like you spar every single week, so if not twice a week to get ready for the fight, but you've got to make weight before you get that fight. So it makes sense that you do heat acclimation once to twice a week. So you can mentally and physically prepare your body for that process. Because a lot of fighters make the mistake, especially at that level, of not doing any of that and then getting to the fight week and then 24, 36 hours before the next biggest fight of their life, something goes wrong or something unexpected happens in that process they weren't prepared for and that completely throws them off and it completely throws them off physically and mentally. You should know every step of the process, every little nitty gritty detail before you get there because you should have practiced it for weeks and weeks and weeks on end.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's a skill yeah heat acclimation cool. how how long do you reckon they have to do heat acclimation for then would they just do like one or two sessions like a couple of weeks before or is it like something you have to again train consistently
0: just just quickly what do you mean by heat acclimation just getting used to being at certain heats and how fast you can sweat out yeah
1: yeah like, yeah, yeah. so heat acclimation is just the process of of getting your body physiologically adapted to heat the way i explain it is like everyone everyone's been in the gym right and like progressive overload principle like you go to the gym obviously bench press i don't know 100 kilos you do it 12 times one week 14 times next week etc etc same with your heat acclimation there's no like hard and fast rule it's pretty much you just get in there and say for the first week you can handle 10 minutes in a sauna at 80 degrees celsius and then the next week you go in there and you do 12 minutes and then the next week you do 14 minutes and then you break it up into two times eight minutes and you progressively get your body because it will adapt. The, obviously, there's a point where it will become diminishing returns, but your body is very, very, very good at adapting to heat and heat tolerance. So you can do that. And it, it's really cool once you've done that with an athlete and then you take them through a weight cutting process because physically, yes, there's, there's advantageous uh, adaptations that you make, like the quicker onset of sweat, you lose less electrolytes, but mentally, huge, huge, huge advantages mentally once they've gone through that process, they're no longer freaking out about the bath. They know how long it's meant to take them to sweat. We know how long we need to stay in that bath to get this much amount of weight. And we go on the wraps and we do this and we should lose X amount of weight. And then we're going to chill out for a bit and go back in for round two because we know we've done this through your heat acclimation, we should lose X amount. So it just mentally makes the whole process so much easier for them. And that in itself is such, such, such an important thing for an athlete that's going into a cage to lock themselves against the next best fighter in the world you need to tick all these mental boxes and i think that's for a lot of athletes become unhinged is when they don't practice this weight cut or get it right and it mentally throws them off the rails a bit
2: do you reckon a sauna is key like even if you're not cutting weight let's say would you reckon just heat acclimation would be a good idea for any athlete basically regardless just get used to sweating and like keeping your body temperature right through something other than training
1: yeah yeah i think there's there's a lot of research right coming out for the benefits of sauna like and there's you don't necessarily have to do it just in a sauna like you can do it in a bath you can do it in one of those sauna blankets like i said anything that gets your core body temperature up and you start eliciting that sweat response physiologically you're going to get that adaptation right so yeah, you don't necessarily have to do it in a sauna you just have to increase your core body temperature
2: I has got to get a sauna
1: subscription <laughs> fitness first
0: does one yeah yeah, get in there that sounds like a good idea how do you reckon john jones is going
1: to do it heavyweight probably really good if i'm being honest um he's done it right like going up a weight class is almost trickier than going down a weight class in some instances because when you go up a weight class like I was just talking about the Volk, we've only got four months, right? So you're, you're limited to the amount that you can physically do with something. Like you can't put on so much weight in that amount of time and still, in, and still maintain a certain workload. Like he's been out for years now, right? So years that he's been developing his body and increasing his muscle mass and he's done it slowly and progressively. It'd be pretty scary. The thing is, is that when guys put on a lot of weight really fast, you usually see their gas tank go. But if he's done it right and he's done it slow, he's probably kept a good degree of that endurance and he's probably maintained and built his strength around his joints so he's, so he's able to maintain a certain work rate while still maintaining that increased strength, which is which is kind of scary. I don't know if I'd want to be the guy that's, that's welcoming him back, to be honest. He's
0: a fucking monster. I mean, one, one last question, Hazmat. What do you think about Hazmat Jalai of just bla- <laughs> bla- so funny, bla- blatantly missing the weight by like 10, <laughs> five to 10 kgs?
1: yeah uh, like it's a crazy thing right like to, to be fair i don't want to talk trash on the ufc or whatever obviously work with them pretty closely but i don't know there's there's lots of weird things that goes on behind closed doors with that organization and i think like i think first and foremost hasn't it stuffed up i think from what i've seen with with i don't i don't want to segment but say like a lot of the the eastern Bloc athletes they tend to have and same with the Ch- chinese are getting better because they've got the pi over there but a lot of those athletes have very, very old school mentalities when it comes to cutting weight and, and his training in general. And don't get me wrong, they're tough, but when it comes to cutting weight, they're a bit behind the eight ball. So it would not surprise me if they stuff something up and it just didn't happen. And He was actually really overweight and he has to cop full responsibility. Him and his team have to cop full responsibility for that. It's not professional at all. I would not be surprised if the UFC intervened in some way and, and there was some weird backdoor deals going on or something like, I know everyone's saying that's like conspiracy, but from what I've seen with the UFC, it's, yeah. He, he,
0: he's a big star, everyone loves him. There's definitely some,
2: yeah, yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they just let him off. As
0: well. They let him off, he's friends with Razman. we'll leave it there. <laughs> yeah, well, Geordie, thanks for your time, man. It's been a pleasure to have you on.
2: Yeah, thank you very much. That's yeah. super interesting. Absolutely, man. Yeah.
0: Hi, yeah. Right, man. Thanks for coming on, Geordie. And um, where, where can our viewers check out more of you, man? What, what's the best way to. Uh,
1: we're pretty active on social. So, so Instagram is probably our biggest one. So the underscore fight dietitian. Uh, we got Facebook as well, uh, the fight dietitian, YouTube, uh, Jordan Sullivan, TikTok nowadays, Jordan Sullivan dietitian uh but yeah mostly on instagram you can if you want to email us if anyone still does that info at com. good spot yeah. to go
0: shout out to your course as well i signed up to that uh, a couple of weeks ago it's, it's good course it's um i've done a fair few nutrition courses in my life and i think what i like about your one this is it's, it's very simple you could get through it in like less than a week and it's just like, this is, this is what protein is, this is what carbs is, this is what fats is, here's how they work in the body. Here's how like an example of like what a cut could look like. Here's the p- kind of process that we'll do. It's like super, super straightforward.
1: Yeah, a lot of the courses I've done as well and with nutrition, sports nutrition, there's just so much fluff, right? Like there's so much fluff and considerations and what if, and it's just like, how does that help the athlete that has to make weight? Like I think with a lot of other sports and a lot of other things, there isn't an end goal. Like with combat athletes, you have to make weight and there's no ifs or buts about it. Like you have to hit that number on the scale. And unless you know what you're doing, like we spoke about earlier, leading up to it and you understand certain concepts, that's going to be either very difficult or very hard or very easy or very difficult. So the way we designed the course was how do we give these guys the most amount of information? So when it comes to making weight, and hitting that scale, they're not killing themselves to the scale but they have all the knowledge to be able to do it as safe and efficient as possible.
0: Nice. Well done, mate. You're crushing it. Absolutely crushing it. Good luck to you and the fighters. And uh, thanks for coming on, Jordy.
1: Thanks guys. And no doubt chat soon. Eh? Yep, yep. Yeah. Cheers, bro. Cheers, bro.